Hello and welcome back to the Dropstep podcast. I'm your host Jack Quantrill and today we have a sneak peek into the series that's going to get you through the NBA off-season. Yes, that's right. Get ready for the first episode of First in Class. As NBA fans, we love to debate more than anything else probably, maybe even more than watching the games. And one of the questions that often comes up is what was the best draft of all time? Now, there are some fan favourites. 1984 is probably held as that consensus pick. You've got MJ, Charles Barkley, Hakeem, Stockton, all coming out of the same draft. You've got 2003, where you get the Banana Boat crew, minus Chris Paul, Carmelo, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade, and of course, the man himself, LeBron James. You might say 1996, the Kobe draft with AI, Steve Nash, Jermaine O'Neal, Ray Allen, Peja Stojakovic, ridiculously deep. But the conversation often comes down to, well, what produced the best players? We don't necessarily account for position, for fit. But over this NBA offseason, once the finals are done, we're going to fully jump into Not what was the best draft class of all time, but which draft class would make the best team. The Dropstep podcast feed is going to be bringing you a 32-team, fictitious, March Madness-style tournament, pitting the 32 best draft classes of all time against each other. We're going to analyse the rosters, the matchups, and ultimately, it's going to give us a real avenue to talk about some unsung NBA heroes, to get into the dynamics of building a team, analyse what might happen if you've got this massive collection of talent together. And we're going to have a different take on what the best draft class of all time is. So today, I want to bring you a little sneak peek episode before game one of the NBA finals, before the Miami Heat, head to Denver for what promises to be a really interesting tactical series. And we're going to be bringing you 2009 versus 2012. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to break down each eight-man roster. Just to be clear, I've chosen to do eight-man rosters for the 32 teams that I've selected because in a playoff series like we're seeing now, Rotations typically get reduced to seven, eight, sometimes even six players only playing big minutes. So we're not doing full 15-man teams. Quite frankly, that would be way too much research into who the 13th or 14th best player in a draft was. But I feel like eight also gives the edge to perhaps some of the draft classes that aren't as top-heavy but might have a ridiculous amount of talent. The 1985 draft, for example, produced 10 All-Stars, but no MVPs. And I wanted to try and balance out that depth versus the creme de la creme of the NBA. So we're going to go for eight-man rosters. But anyway, let's jump into it. First of all, I'm going to break down the 2009 NBA draft headlined by Steph Curry and James Harden. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the eight-man roster And then we'll jump into 2012. So, 
Our 2009 team is headlined by the most impactful pair of guards to be drafted together since Jerry West and Oscar Robertson in 1960. Our point guard for 2009 is one Steph Curry and our shooting guard is James Harden. An absurd amount of talent to have at the two guard spots. See if you can recognise a theme with these next couple of players. The ultimate problem with this draft class. At the small forward, we're actually going to go for a three-guard lineup with Drew Holiday playing at the three. As our stretch four, we're going a little bit undersized with Danny Green. And then playing a small ball five, we've got Blake Griffin rounding out the starting lineup. An absurd amount of talent and an absurd lack of size. Unfortunately, it's not massively helped by the bench either. So our nominal sixth man is going to be DeMar DeRozan. Our seventh man, long-time NBA enforcer James Johnson, and coming in to play the backup big minutes, is a Tibbs favourite, and that's Taj Gibson. Our 2012 team sees Dame Lillard paired with Bradley Bill in the front court, with Chris Middleton and Draymond Green at the three and four, with Anthony Davis at the five. On the bench, you have three more useful role players, the sixth man being Harrison Barnes, seventh, Andre Drummond, and rounding out the 2012 roster is Jay Crowder. So, just a little rundown of the two respective drafts. So with 2009, it's a difficult call, which was the biggest miss. So Memphis take Hashim to beat with the number two pick, a big man who was out of the league in five years. That sounds kind of questionable. Maybe we're heading towards that kind of situation with James Wiseman at the moment if he can't quite find his feet in Detroit. But then the Minnesota Timberwolves fumble the bag not once but twice. They have back-to-back selections at number five and number six in this draft. At number five, they take a great point guard, a European prospect who looked like he was league-ready. No questions to really be asked here in Ricky Rubio. But then at number six, a spot before Steph Curry is taken, the Minnesota Timberwolves select Johnny Flynn. Johnny was a six foot tall Syracuse guard who'd spent two seasons with the Orange. And he only bettered that by one in the NBA, only lasting three years in the league. So a massive fumble by the Timberwolves there. Uh, Some of our near misses in terms of selection for the respective rosters were a number of guards for the 2009 team, actually. So you had an all-star missing out in Jeff Teague, who was part of those Mike Budenhoser Atlanta Hawks teams. Ricky Rubio misses out. Tyreek Evans misses out. Patty Mills, Darren Collison, Pat Beverly. If you're noticing, this was a phenomenal class of guards, but there's only room for so many in our rotation. And as you can see, the underlying theme with this 2009 draft Just a complete lack of size. But moving on to the 2012 draft, a little bit harder to pinpoint the biggest misses within the draft. So the Charlotte Hornets take Michael Kidd Gilchrist at number two. We're going to see through the series that that number two pick is seemingly cursed. It's very rare that a team gets it right. MKG, not necessarily his fault that he didn't become the star that he was meant to be. During his college tenure, he actually breaks his arm in a car accident, which completely messes up his shooting form. And you'll probably have seen stills going around on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok of his stroke, because it is 
the opposite of a site for sore eyes. It will give you sore eyes. It is not a pleasant look. But Cleveland selects Dion Waiters at number four. Now, Dion is probably most known these days for winning a ring with the Lakers, being a part of those Cleveland championship teams and featuring on the rewatchables as your big heat check guy. But he's selected at number four. Then Sacramento Kings completely miss with Thomas Robinson, who's out of the league in five years. And at number six, Weber State point guard Damian Lillard is picked. So just picture those LeBron Cavs teams if they had either the asset of a Dame Lillard coming off a rookie year or just that backcourt pairing of him and Kyrie. That's one of those what ifs that isn't necessarily quite as discussed, you know. Maybe LeBron is still in Cleveland at this point. If he has not one but two stars next to him, they can still trade for Kevin Love. Maybe they bring in an even bigger superstar than Kevin Love when LeBron signs, packaging both Wiggins and Lillard. And what the hell happens to Portland? You know, if you take Damian Lillard out of the equation, sure, they probably pick up a franchise guy in the next couple of drafts because that franchise was going nowhere fast, especially once LaMarcus Aldridge leaves. But they would be in an even sorrier state than they're in now. There weren't as many near misses for the 2012 draft in terms of making it onto our eight-man roster. I think you could probably argue that Evan Fournier perhaps deserved a spot over the likes of Jay Crowder, Harrison Barnes, maybe even Terrence Ross, Will Barton, the aforementioned Dion Waiters. But I just think going for that wing size, particularly when you're looking at the matchup against 2009, it makes more sense to have those wings. You're not going to want guards who aren't as good as your Dames, your Brad Beals, or, you know, forwards like Chris Middleton handling the ball a ton. So probably best to go for size, enable a switching defensive scheme and ride with it from there. Anyway, what we're going to do now is we're going to break down the two teams. We're going to break down the styles, which they're probably going to look to play on both the offensive and defensive ends. And we're going to try and hash out how a seven game series would go and who you guys are going to pick to go through to the next round of first in class. So have you ever wondered what an idealized small ball offensive lineup would look like in the NBA? Have you ever messed with it on 2K, perhaps turned trade override on on my career or done something on my team where you're just going all out three point shooting, pace in transition and just experimenting to see how many points you can score from behind the arc in a game? I think if you did, you'd probably come up with something that looks like the 2009 team. As we can see, the two guards for the 2009 team are probably the greatest exponents of small ball offense in our generation first of all at the point guard you've got Steph Curry this is a guy that can work wonders with the ball in his hands he has the ball on a string just absolute ball handling wizardry can dance through the pick and roll can pick apart coverages double teams split get to the rim whatever you want and then of course we all know about his off ball value whether he's running routes like Tyreek Hill around the court and stopping on a dime to pull up from three, or if he's just crossing the half court and shooting a bomb from 30 feet in transition, Steph is the greatest threat we've ever seen from behind the arc. And the second greatest threat, it might not be James Harden, but in terms of a one-man small ball offense, James Harden is your guy. This is a guy that we saw set usage records in the NBA and 
really push the boundaries for what's offensively possible in terms of points generated. At his peak under Mike D'Antoni in Houston, he was registering 36-point seasons, 37-point seasons, the stuff that we haven't seen since Michael Jordan in 1988 or Kobe in 2006. But on top of that, he was also dishing out 10-plus assists, pushing for an assist title. So those two alone are just an insane amount of talent to have in a backcourt. Then when you throw in a 3 and D guy who can actually press on the half court defensively, but really just slot in wherever you want around your two superstars in Drew Holiday, I just think it gets even better. This is someone that can attack closeouts, can shoot off the catch and shoot, can take his guy to the post, particularly if he's up against a smaller guard. And he has that playmaking intelligence to spot little passes for his teammates, to work a two-man game with Steph, with James Harden, with Blake Griffin, with DeMar DeRozan. And then at the four, you have an elite 3 and D player, someone that's happy to relocate around the court feed off the corner threes that James Harden's going to generate in the pick and roll, and that's Danny Green. And then to top it off, I think we saw the best version of James Harden when he had a fantastic rim runner and lob threat in Clint Capella for the Houston Rockets. Now imagine pairing him with one of the best rim runners and lob threats of all time. Blake is just going to live off the points that Harden's going to generate. He's going to be able to run handoff actions with Steph if we're looking at what he did in his Detroit days. And he's even going to be able to space out to three. I think the peak Blake Griffin was probably the guy that came third in MVP in his LA Clippers days before those surgeries started to take their toll. But if you look at his times with the Pistons as well, he was utilised in a much better bigger role. This is a guy that was running handoffs on the perimeter, which we've seen be really successful in this year's playoffs with Bam Adebayo. Draymond Green and Steph have lived off of it for the entire Warriors dynasty. Sabonis has run them with the Kings this year to great effects. It's a great way to get ball handlers in motion. And really, I just think that this 2009 team has every weapon. Aside from a dominant post player, they can do everything on the offensive end of the court and then if you have to sit either of James or Steph you slide Drew Holiday down to the one or the two he takes on some more ball handling responsibilities and he can still guard the point of attack and you have DeMar DeRozan come in let's say he's on the court with James Harden at the same time just picture what we've seen in Dallas this year with Kyrie and Luca. you have the primary action being run on one side of the court with James, with the screen setter, let's say it's Blake, let's say it's Taj, whoever, and then just waiting to attack that closeout, even if he's not a fantastic spacer, is Demar. This is a guy that can also operate in the post. If he's got a smaller matchup on him, he's just going to dominate. He can slash. There's so much rim pressure from this team, and they're just going to be bombing away from three. So, how do you beat them? Well, they don't have anyone over six foot ten on their team. Even Taj, our backup big man, is six foot nine. He's got long arms, but during his heyday, he played next to five. So he was a four in Chicago, playing next to Powell, playing next to Joachim Noah. And Blake as well, I actually went back and looked at some of the data for this. His Clippers teams used to have incredible plus minus data, aside from when he was the small ball five. He always had to play next to a rim-protecting centre, whether that was DeAndre Jordan or a whole host of substandard-slash-replacement-level big men. 
So I think our big question is, how the hell do they protect the rim? I don't know if they really do. I think you're going to see this 2009 team in any series against any team. It's going to be all about pressure. They're going to look to force turnovers, make ball handlers uncomfortable, play aggressive schemes. I can see Blake blitzing on the pick and roll or maybe being kept out of a primary action just so he can guard on the weak side. But we're going to have to get really, really creative defensively, particularly because the 2009 team is matching up against a dominant big in Anthony Davis. Which brings us on to the 2012 team. They've got less weapons than 2009. They're not that idealised small ball team, but I think this is a championship level collection of talent when you look at the ball handling, when you look at the defensive capabilities and you look at some of the wing depth coming off the bench. Playing at the point for the 2012 team is the start of the offensive show, at least, and that's going to be Dame Lillard. And I think Dame is going to be one of, if not the biggest key to this team. I think he's probably 90% of Steph Curry. Uh, what I've decided to do for this series is look at each player for a three-year peak. So for Dame, we've got this season, we're going to cut out the one before where he struggled with the abdominal injury, didn't necessarily have a full off-season because he was leading that USA Olympic team. And we're going to combine together the two seasons with this one just gone. So from 1920, Dame starts shooting over 10 threes per game. His true shooting never drops below 62%. And in fact, last year, it was 64.5%. And in terms of points scored, he's hovering around that 30 mark. And last year, he scored 32.2. He's getting to the line about eight and a half times per game if we're just averaging out this three-year peak and generating about seven assists for his teammates. So he's not a generational playmaker, but in terms of just a guard scorer, he's up there with anyone from the 2010s. And this 2012 team is going to rely on his pick-and-roll offense. It's going to be their main go-to play. We've seen Dame have great success in the past operating on the perimeter with Yusuf Nurkic, where he'll either roll to the rim or perform handoff actions that we've spoken about that Blake could perhaps perform for the 2009 team. And I think that's where Draymond Green comes in. Uh, Draymond has often been a rumoured trade target for the Trailblazers because I think Lillard thinks he could have a similar game to that of Steph with Draymond. And we get to see this play out in this fictional matchup, which would be really exciting. But then if you combine that with the additional threat of the love threat of Anthony Davis. You've got two options to go for in the pick and roll. And I think it's really simplified, actually. When either of them go to the bench, you've got a clear way of playing. You're either going to have that big that can generate offense on his own, that can roll to the rim, that can catch lobs, or you're going to have someone that you're trying to hit on the short roll if you're getting blitzed on the pick and roll. And I think that's really exciting because it gives 2012 options. And as we know from having reviewed that 2009 team while Drew might be the guy stationed on Dame Lillard they don't have the most defensive options in the world if you're ever getting into a switch situation you've got an advantageous matchup maybe Danny Green can hold his own against Lillard but Steph is going to struggle Harden is going to struggle Blake is going to struggle so I'd expect him to cook in this series but if he is shut down then it's Bradley Beal that's going to have all the advantages. And what we've seen throughout Brad's career is 
while he had his numbers inflated as a number one option for a few years in Washington, in fact, after John Wall left, he averaged 34% usage for two years straight, which would rank fourth in the NBA this year. We know that Bradley Bill is a great player, but we don't want him having the ball quite that much. He's a really solid number two scoring option. This is a guy that regardless of volume operates at around that 59 to 60% true shooting mark and he's going to be good for dependent on the game 20 to 35 to even 40 points per game dependent on what coverages he's facing. I think if you leave Brad alone, if you don't put say Danny Green on him, then he's just going to have time to dice through the defence and really generate his own shots. He's good at getting to the foul line. He's a guy that can shoot off movement. If you look at some of the highlights from some of his best seasons, like 2021, where he was actually scoring leader in the regular season, you see that Beal was happy running routes around the court, similar to what we see a Steph do. So he's going to benefit from playing with Draymond, playing with one of those handoff hubs. And at the three, you're going to have even more offense with Chris Middleton. Uh, if Dame isn't having the best night, if he's getting doubled, tripled on the perimeter, then he's going to have two very high quality secondary options to turn to in Chris and Brad. Middleton, just a really efficient scorer, can shoot off the catch, can generate his own looks, can get to the mid-range, can punish mismatches. It's three high-level scorers, even if you don't quite have the same real punch as you would with you know, Stephen James. And then at the five, AD. You've just got so many options. I think we saw in this last playoffs what an ideal Davis looks like. He was able to fully focus his efforts on the defensive end of the floor and was the most impactful defensive player of the playoffs. So with all this perimeter creation, sure, Davis is still probably going to average 25 a game just through pick and roll through offensive rebounds, through post touches. He's still going to be a really, really useful scorer, but he's not actually going to be the focus of the offense for this team, considering the talent that's around him. And I really think that's a good thing. Some guys in the league are alphas, some aren't. This is the Robin to Dame's Batman on the offensive end of the floor, but defensively, Davis is still the star of the show and he's the star of this 2012 team. They've got real options off the bench. I think if you want to go four in, one out and sit Draymond, then you've got two wings that can come in and just space from the corners in Barnes and Crowder. They're two quite high IQ guys, or at least they've been part of really strong offensive systems. So they're going to know where to be, know how to space, and they'll be able to make the extra pass if a advantage has been created earlier on in the move. You know, they're going to have that swing pass to the other side of the court for an open three, or they'll be able to find Davis on a cut. So it's plenty of options for the 2012 team. So what we'll do now is let's get into which team would actually win this matchup. We've got an idea of the idealised way that each team is going to play, but what are the weak points for 2009 against 2012 and vice versa. So what I think the sticking point for this fictional series is going to be is how good is that 2009 team going to be at scoring the basketball? Now, you've got this idealised small ball that we've already mentioned before. You've got two of the most efficient, high creation, high scoring guards in history of the league 
with three other complimentary guys, including an all-NBA lob threat and five. But I've still got some concerns offensively. I think 2012 is really going to struggle to guard 2009 on the perimeter in terms of the best matchup they've got for, let's say, James Harden. Maybe you're going to try Draymond Green on him just as a sort of one-on-one. -on -one. I think we saw that a little bit during those run-ins that they had with the Chris Paul, James Harden, Houston Rockets teams against the Steph, Dre, Clay, KD, Warriors teams. But he is going to be able to get to whatever spot he really wants to get to on the perimeter. And I want to quickly address something about James Harden. He's obviously got this reputation as an all-time playoff choker. And yeah, he's had some really, really bad games. But during his peak, this is still a guy that was averaging about 29 playoff points per game on deep runs against elite opposition. Often he was the primary option for the team. And I think you could argue that while he's probably going to dominate the ball handling for this team just due to Steph's ability off ball, he's going to have so much more room to operate. You know, Steph always draws two guys. James always draws two guys. So how does a team stop the 2009 team? I think even if you look at it a little bit deeper, yes, Harden and Curry are going to have their way with anyone on the perimeter, but you've also got a really dangerous pick and roll game between James Harden and Blake Griffin. I think in the earlier stages of his career, we saw James have a ton of success with a rim runner. And then more recently with Philly, we've seen him thrive in the pick and roll with Joel Embiid. And he much prefers to get that ball around the nail area, work it in the mid range, basically the stop and pop shot. And Prime Blake is going to be able to do both. So you've got even more optionality in that pick and roll game. And I think if they could work out their chemistry, then that would be the most dangerous pick and roll partner that James has ever had in his career. So you've got that to contend with. You've got perfect spacing as long as you've got the starters in. And even if you have some of the bench players in, so if James Johnson is playing and Damar is playing and your spacing is a little bit compromised, I think the gravity of Steph, the scoring gravity of Damar is going to keep that pick and roll being a viable option for 2009, even against Draymond and AD. So I think even with the rim protection that 2012 has, I don't see this 2009 team scoring less than... 120 points per game or averaging less than an 120 offensive rating they've just got too many options they've got too many high profile scorers and 2012 doesn't have the perimeter defenders to slow down some of these premier creators but on the other side I don't know who slows anyone on 2012 down I think we've discussed that Drew is about as good an option on Dame as you're going to find. So maybe he's marginalised, but he's still going to get his points. He can space off ball. He can come round screens. He can operate in that handoff action. Dame has shown time and time again that he can find a way to be effective against tough perimeter defenders. Bradley Bill is going to be guarded by either Steph or James, which is a recipe for disaster. Chris is probably going to have a difficult matchup against Danny Green, but there's just too many mismatches for 2009 to contend with. 
maybe Blake can do a decent job on AD, but vertically he's not providing a ton of rim protection. So you've got all of these guards that can get to the paint. You've got AD, who is this premier lob threat. You've got spacers who can come in off the bench like Harrison Barnes, like a Jay Crowder. And you've even got another completely different problem in Andre Drummond. We're speaking about how difficult 2009 is going to find it to guard 2012 due to their size. Bring in the best pound-for-pound rebounder we've had in the NBA for the last 10 years. And they're going to be getting so many second chance opportunities. They're not going to be able to contend with Drummond on the inside, even if it's only for 10 to 15 minute period during the game. So what do you think? I think that 2012 isn't slowing down 2009. I think it's going to be a high scoring affair throughout the series. But personally, despite having less talent, I think that 2012 probably has the edge in this series because I see 2009 getting no stops in a matchup. They've still got good offensive players who can get to their spots, who are playoff proven. They're still going to average 120, 130 a game against a team that's got no options for guarding them. Yes, they've got some decent one-on-one defenders, but just that lack of size is so difficult to overcome. So for me, I think I'd probably pick the 2012 team in six or seven. And that's because you've got to allow for shooting variants. Yes, there are going to be some nights where James and Steph go nuclear, where the quote-unquote role players for 2009 hit their shots. And I do think that Blake would have some success due to that variability that he can have in the pick and roll, either popping or going the full way to the rim. We've seen him dunk over numerous players. And honestly, if you're looking for some fun after this podcast, look up Blake Griffin highlights. During that 2013-14 season, he is magnificent. Just a sight to behold. His game is so much more versatile than you probably remember it. We all remember him jumping over the Kia in the 2010 dunk contest, 2011 dunk contest. I can't quite remember. But this is a guy that could create in isolation, at the nail, in the low post, and obviously be that lob threat that we all love. But just to me, I don't see 2009 slowing anyone down. They're going to have a massive problem on the boards that's going to allow 2012 big rebounding opportunities. I worry about foul trouble for your starting bigs, like a Blake who's not really played the five all that much. Even Taj Gibson, who was a really good big defender at his peak, is going to struggle against the size of an AD and of an Andrew Drummond. Who'd have thought that a 2009 versus 2012 draft might well come down to Andre Drummond, who is fighting for minimum contracts these days. But you've got to admit that during his peak, he was a force and he is a real advantage creator in this matchup just because of that 2009 team's complete lack of size so I think that there are a couple of nights where either James or Steph goes cold I think that 2012 is going to be in the close games with 2009 just because they have the similar scoring power and they've got a little bit more of an ability to get stops on that defensive end so for that reason I would pick 2012 over 2009 and they would be the first team to progress in our first in class series. So 
that's the end of the analysis of this matchup. But I just want to finish with some final thoughts and I want to see if I can get your guys' feedback on where you want this series to go in the next few episodes. What I think we've been able to do in this episode is explore some great players that are still in the league. And we're going to do that plenty more with the episodes to come. But we're also going to get to reminisce over older players. You know, players that haven't been in the league for 10, 15, sometimes even 30 years. And imagine how their games would translate to today. But we have been able to look at roster construction. In this matchup, if you're going off my opinion, a less talented team is going to progress through the series just because despite having all that talent that 2009 has, you know, genuinely a much better starting five and a really, really good sixth man coming off the bench. I just think that that lack of size is a fatal flaw. It's super hard to overcome. We've seen it in Dallas this year where they've got two of the best scoring guards in the world. They've got Luca, who is one of the best one-man offensive machines we've seen for the last 20 years. They've got Kyrie, one of the most talented one-on-one bucket getters we've seen in the history of the league. And it's no good having them score really efficiently if they can't get any other stops on the other end. It just means that when Luca goes cold, when Kyrie goes cold, when they get blitzed and their role players are forced to make shots, you're giving up such an advantage because you're not able to stop anyone on the other end. You're forcing yourself to have a perfect game. And... I think that's really interesting. I think that we'll be able to analyse some of these talent versus fit advantages and disadvantages through this series. We'll be able to analyse what draft class really provided the most balanced roster of players and whether it's a thing to think about for team building. I think it's unlikely that you ever get a team as talented as 2009 assembled, but you do see similar things. The Phoenix Suns sold out their depth this year because they could get together a big three slash four of Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton. And they've suffered for it in the playoffs. We saw the Lakers sell out their depth two seasons ago to bring in a third star in Russ that just completely ruined their roster and ruined LeBron James's last chance as the best player on a title team to pick up another ring. So... Hopefully it's made you think not only about these two draft classes and some of the fantastic players that we've got to explore today, but also about team building as a whole, how players fit together and what you want your team to do going forward as we enter this NBA off-season. That's been the first episode of First in Class. Thank you for listening if you've got this far. Just as a heads up, this isn't going to return until the NBA Finals have finished. But this is the series that's going to get you through the NBA off-season. In the future, I'm going to try and get a guest on to manage the other teams so that we can have a little bit of a back and forth about what you might try and do in terms of the management of these teams. And I want you guys voting on what team is going to progress because that's going to decide who prevails. I'm going to post a poll on the NBA Dropstep Twitter account just so you guys can vote who's going to progress. I'm also going to post a poll on Fanspo, which I'll leave a link to in the description and leave some feedback. I've done this in a way where I've trusted you guys to know about the players. You know about these players' peaks because you've watched them for the last 10 years, right? But I'm going to be speaking about some more historical players 
in the future, some players that you haven't necessarily seen on tape. And I might do a bit more of a deep dive on some of them just so I can get you up to speed with their games and you can really picture how these games would go down. Anyway, share with friends if you enjoyed. I want to get a community talking about this kind of stuff. This series will thrive if we can get some debate going. As I said at the top of the podcast, we're NBA fans. What do we love more? Watching the games or debating who's right? That has been the Dropstep Podcast. That's been our second episode, the first episode of First in Class. I hope you've enjoyed. I've been Jack Quantrill. Have a great rest of your day. And I'll see you again next time, either for a breakdown of who I think is going to make All-NBA for the first time next year or a defence of five bad NBA takes that I have. I'm going to try and convince you of some bad opinions and see if I can bring you around to my way of thinking. Thanks for listening. Catch you all next time. Enjoy the rest of the NBA Finals.